Hello, and welcome back to Somewhere in Between Scooby-Doo and Slam Poets, a podcast dedicated to examining intersectional oppression as it kills in plain sight. I'm your host, Gray Kipping, your local queer autistic off-brand Sherlock Holmes, and this episode I'll be discussing three of the current hot topic teaching pedagogies for student-centered teaching, specifically as it relates to career and technological education. This will be the beginning of a multi-part series analyzing how American education perpetuates socioeconomic inequality. Today, we'll include brief definitions, an analysis of a USF research study, and real-life examples. I will be listing references as well as a transcript in the description. Okay, so the three definitions that I need to go over are educational simulation, cooperative learning, and instructional modeling. Firstly, educational simulation is basically creating real-life models that apply educational concepts through student interaction. So, for example, it's utilizing human dummies for lifeguards to practice deep water rescue and CPR. In the classroom, this can also look like a nursing student practicing on a dummy or um, a student in a chemistry lab practicing on a fake rat or fake frog instead of a real one. Secondly, we have cooperative learning, which is classic small group learning with designated tasks and common goals towards mastering specific material. Uh, Essentially, a teacher will break students into groups and then within that group each person has a specific task you have like your recorder the person who writes everything down or like your historian who helps with research and your group leader whatnot and uh, this model creates space for students to have independence self-direction ownership over their learning and gives applicable contexts for the curriculum. Okay, now that we've got the basics, you know, definitions and understanding what we're talking about, now it's time to kind of chisel away at why I'm talking about it. Why is this important? Why are these advanced techniques considered beneficial or even more effective than traditional teaching techniques? Like, lecturing and and questioning and whole group discussion. And quite frankly, there are too many answers to that question for me to really get into in just one episode. But there is a particular facet of this discourse that I would like to focus in on. And a USF research article titled Instructional Strategy Use of Faculty in Career and Technical Education attempts to touch upon it a little bit. So I'm going to be getting into what exactly that is and give a good critical analysis of this particular um, piece here. So what the authors attempt to do is detail the teaching pedagogies most commonly used by CTE teachers in higher education. 
the goal really was to create a foundation of research that would allow CTE instruction moving forward to better help diverse student bodies develop 21st century competencies. So this is where it starts to touch on the facet of this discourse that I wanted to cover. The idea that racism, classism, sexism, ableism is perpetuated not only in the overarching institutions of America, you know, government, education, the justice system, things of that nature, but also in everyday lives, like the way that we carry out teaching strategies and teaching pedagogies, et cetera, et cetera, is really important to consider when we're discussing or trying to address things like the achievement gap. The issue with this study is that the data represent a white majority of instructors and those instructors teach at four-year institutions and they tend to teach STEM and business education. That's, you know, I'll get more into that later, but hopefully you also see the red flags there. Unsurprisingly, the findings reveal a preference for constructive teaching strategies like I mentioned earlier, interactive lecture, questioning, whole group discussion, and guided practice. And there was also an apprehension towards integrating technology. It's not hard to see why this research is important, you know, considering that even on the first page, the authors list that in the 2008 and 2009 school year, 41% of the CTE student body consisted of students of color, while 90% of CTE instructors were white. Um, this disproportion in representation impacts the way teachers perceive students and informs the strategies that they employ, right? As a white person, I know that I have implicit bias. The way that I perceive the world is informed by constructions of race. And that does not stop happening when I walk into the classroom or walk into even like a place of authority, a place of power over children um, in a school building, regardless of if I'm teaching or not. And um, it's important to consider how this uh, disproportion in representation that um, Fletcher, Dachikasana, and Eisen reference not only impacts the pedagogies we choose to employ in the classroom, but also perpetuates achievement gaps. I personally believe that educational institutions will continue to perpetuate structural inequality without conscious reframing of class classroom methodology. Karina Jackson and Ezekiel Dixon Roman discuss how CTE pedagogy inherently racializes students of color in a 2020 research paper that they did. They assert that this occurs in a student's rhizomatic relationship to the socioeconomic history of CTE, shifts in labor market interests and technology, and the infrastructural needs of embodied skill sets. This perspective really illustrates how teaching methodology or pedagogy 
teaching strategies, whatever you need to call it, studied in instructional strategy use of faculty and career and technical education plays an active role in educational equality. So let's stop and get into that for a quick second. The assertion by Jackson and Dixon Roman that a student has a rhizomatic relationship to CTE or just career technical education is insane, right? The idea that they are simultaneously being influenced by multiple aspects of this particular sect of education at differing levels of intensity depending on their positioning and and timing makes it seem almost impossible to even address some of these issues. But thankfully, these authors have broken it down to some really major um, things that we need to pay attention to. Specifically, the socioeconomic history of CTE, shifts in the labor market, its interests, technology, whatever, and then infrastructural needs of embodied skill sets. So that was a big thing was how does CTE, how do these teaching pedagogies embody the racism or the racialized existence of black people in America, of poor people in America through CTE's socioeconomic positioning within labor markets, right? So well, why do we have these things? You know, what is the purpose of education? What are our goals for our students? How are our pedagogies informed by these goals? Where are they, these goals coming from? Are they coming from a place of white saviorism? Are they coming from a place of, uh, of classism, really? It's a question that you need to ask yourself. And I think every educator needs to ask themselves. Unfortunately, I do not think the authors at USF putting together the instructional strategy use of faculty in career and technical education paper were, I don't think they were asking themselves these questions, okay? While the writing itself, especially in the introductory portion of the paper, while it made sure to emphasize issues of imbalance between students and faculty, the research itself did not, and it failed to provide a thorough analysis of how this reality impacted their findings or body of participants. The introduction provides a list of marginalizing identities. It goes from like sex and gender and, and race and, and ethnicity and religion. Uh, but there's no intention behind it. It's just listing, it's just like surface level identity politics. And further on in the paper, there's this vague implication towards race. And it just discusses race demographics specifically um, a couple of times when it touches on achievement gaps. But this plays into a framework that exists within all kinds of discussion about diversity 
because it's coming from oh like a, a white perspective of this is a new issue diversity is a new issue imposing itself on a pre-existing educational structure not as something that was already deeply intertwined with the institution and instructional methods already right so let's break that down even though education was originally made for the affluent white males of american society and continued to be that for quite a long time and quite longer than i think most people even really realize that doesn't mean that marginalized communities and diversity was not deeply intertwined in the creation and the maintenance of that institution, right? So the fact that there was a purposeful exclusion of different groups of people informed the culture, informed the instructional methods, informed the attitudes of education, and is the foundation of you know, American education overall. And anyway, you can't ignore that. Diversity is not new. And quite frankly, educators of color, you know, Black educators, Native American, Indigenous educator, educators, um, disabled educators, like especially deaf educators, oh my goodness, um, have been talking about this for a very long time. And diversity has always been a part of it. It's just no one has really been listening, um, especially not people of privilege. And so it becomes really clear that this paper comes from a framework of privilege and it really gets in the way of, of their discussion and, and of their analysis. The paper itself starts off with an introduction explaining why this study is important and then it goes into a very brief literature review just talking about pedagogies and, and teaching methods and, and whatnot and then uh you know it has you know research methods and and um the actual process then we get into the actual statistics that their findings and um unfortunately that's about it they're was no meat to it the there was no um intersectional analysis of how instructors use these methods and and why they use them and ultimately the statistics really reflected things that we already knew things that um just diverse <laughs> educators i guess um from marginalized communities have been talking about for a really long time and so the inclusion of identity politics, you know, was well-intentioned, but really just became over became problematic as an oversimplified rhetorical tool, you know, to to convince the reader that this this is important to talk about. The lack of consistency and awareness of this framework reflects the very mechanisms of oppression that they're attempting to combat by even doing this research at all. The vagueness of diversity conceptually, ideologically, 
represented in this work undermines the role of education in perpetuating inequality and really it further politicizes marginalized communities. Um, it, it, it even like it creates it, it creates this sense of otherness and otherness within a, a deficit, right? It's not simply marginalized communities are other than the white male able-bodied affluent students it was made for. They are less than. And this is very implicit in subtle, in a sense, in this emphasizing of the addition to teachers' responsibility that diversity causes, as opposed to a call for just total reconstruction. And this really hits home as a disabled student and academic and aspiring educator. Antonio Castro discusses in his work research on pre-service teachers' views of cultural diversity, implications for researching millennial pre-service teachers, reveals this perception of diversity, this ideology, as the product of individual differences and deficits as opposed to a systemic overarching omnipresent hierarchical power system that people are just placed into in relation to each other. Um, Castro asserts that this leads to a perception of an addition to teachers' workload. This addition was referred to in Fletcher Dr. Kushana and Eisen's introductory paragraph. Um, the addition is through the idea that diversity leads to more individualized teaching technologies as opposed to simply restructuring and incorporating multicultural education in the curriculum itself and in the structure and in the teaching pedagogies themselves. So what this might look like is, um, say, you know, for me, as a disabled student, I'll walk into a classroom. Um, I have learning disabilities. I have an audio processing disorder. I am autistic and have ADHD. Sitting in a, a lecture hall in college and having a professor speak at me with no captions uh, very vague PowerPoints, you know, I can, it's never going to work. <laughs> Just never going to work for so many reasons. And so what I have to do as a student is I have to go to Student Accessibility Service, request um, uh, different like learning technologies or, or uh, accessibility accommodations. Like um, I will often get this smart pen that records um, lectures for me while I'm taking my notes. Um, teachers are asked to provide me, um, like, visual, like, transcripts of the lectures or the PowerPoints so that I have something to follow along with. Um, I often ask teachers to provide captions, you know, things of this nature. And this is, like, 
an addition of workload, but instead of it being placed on the teacher as it might be in high school, it is placed on the student. I have to go out of my way and do that. And there are a lot of barriers to doing it. And so that's why a lot of students with disabilities like me don't go through college or don't fall through because it's just a lot of work that I got to do that a lot of other, a lot of other students just don't. Um, and so in high school, a lot of teachers might feel like they have, you know, a, a room full of able-bodied neurotypical students. And then I walk into their classroom and I have specific needs um, or I need certain co accommodations. Like I need a extra time testing or I need a quiet testing room. And so it's an addition of work because they have to add like individually something to their curriculum tailored for me. So in opposition of this, or really I shouldn't dichotomize it, but other than this, um, what Castro is saying that you could instead approach it by restructuring and incorporating multicultural education in the curriculum itself. So what this might look like is you have an awareness and your teaching styles are informed by disabled activists. They're informed by disability. So you always have captions. You always have a visual aid. You um, record your lectures and post them onto the web courses so that students can always access them. You have um, flexible like students, flexible attendance, I think you would call it, is where students don't necessarily have to be in class. They can access the lectures at home in case they're chronically ill, um, things of that nature. And uh, what this might look like with race is going into teaching and going into your teaching pedagogies knowing the implicit bias and the racism that goes into it. Like, how does race inform lecturing, whole group discussion? How does race inform the way that a teacher perceives a student and has a student participate within those particular teaching strategies? And then create pedagogies that are less problematic and more informed and made specifically with the voices of those student populations in mind. So when I say that this paper's lack of intersectional analysis on how instructors use these pedagogies and, and why they use them makes the paper entirely two-dimensional, I'm asserting that without this deeper questioning, of how education itself is informed by racism and classism and sexism and ableism without analyzing how that changes data, how that frames our positions and assertions, without including research from diverse voices that has already been done on this. Ultimately, it's just a piece of paper with statistics about the achievement gap and statistics about common pedagogies. And it doesn't say anything that relates the two of substance. And quite frankly, it comes from a, a place of privilege. And not only is it just passively coming from a place of privilege, it is act 
actively perpetuating the issues that is trying to combat. It is actively further embedding these ideas of a deficit and individualism and um, otherness. Ultimately, one thing that they could have done so easily was include in their survey questions about the professor's approach and personal conceptions of diversity. There's a very brief mention of it um, in the literature review, but it says that the teachers mentioned working with diverse students was rewarding, which is... I honestly, I it's hard for me as a disabled student to even really comment on that because so much of my existence as a successful academic and hopefully a successful educator is inspiration porn. It is, oh, look at this individual with deficits that struggles but powered through and we can all be inspired to work harder. And it's so rewarding working as this savior with people who I'm better than <laughs> and like it's a very crude way to put it but <laughs> quite frankly that's all I have um you know other than it's like the fact that that was the only discussion of perception of diversity is a problem it should have been expanded on simply because it creates a better picture of how teachers approach teaching and how that relates to diverse student populations. And then that would give us a, a, a jumping board or a starting point for advancing our technologies, advancing our techniques, our pedagogies to combat these achievement gaps. And ultimately the, the perpetuation of socioeconomic inequality and, you know, unfortunately, even though the introduction discusses this laundry list of, of identities, the conclusion and discussion sections failed to even, like, compare how their findings implicate teaching outcomes for diverse student populations. So with all of that being said, I'm going to move on to the final section um, because the paper did show us that the three hot topic um, teaching pedagogies that I discussed at the very beginning weren't really covered at all. And it's showing that uh, pedagogies that were made with different learners in mind aren't being used. And I think that's part of the problem. So I'd really like to get more into what these uh, CTE resources are, what these methodologies are, and and how to use them in the classroom and, and why they might or might not be more effective. So according to ctesources.bc.edu, 
CTE learning objectives or learning goals, whatever you want to call it, need to be formatted using the SMART model. So objectives need to be specific, measurable, achievable, result-oriented, and time-bound. This is already more intentional and more thoughtful than whole group discussion and lecturing is. And I know this because as a disabled student, the SMART model is grounded in CBT, our cognitive behavioral therapy. I use this in therapy <laughs> to be more functional. So the fact that it is used to make this teaching pedagogy or these teaching pedagogies more accessible is important to note. Um, the website details appropriate grammatical structure for written initiatives to ensure this framework, and I'm not really going to get into that, but for an example, I plan on teaching a life skills course for disabled students at the high school level. So one course goal would be teaching students how to apply to accessible jobs. And the objective, the written objective for students would be, quote, student will be able to search for and apply to accessible work opportunities both in person and online. So the, the, the object is um, accessible work opportunities in person and online. The verb is are search for and apply to. Um, it's very straightforward. If you remember the simulation teaching strategy, it helps implement the achievement aspect of learning objectives the most, in my opinion, because it creates a safe environment to fail and ask for help. A student of mine, per se, may struggle with online applications. So simulating an online application allows them to learn through trial and error without the pressure of, of risk or, or consequences or repercussions. Cooperative learning implements result-oriented and time-bound qualities of SMART objectives. Students in this strategy have to find common ground in the concrete desired result and make expectations for mastery within a clear time limit. For me, this might look like my students breaking into groups to find jobs for each other. And then they can use collective problem-solving skills and, and foster real-time skill building as opposed to simply stagnant lists of, of, of how-tos, which doesn't really build anything. It just gives students resources. And finally, instructional modeling is the direct implementation of the measurable aspect of SMART course objectives. This pedagogy provides observable and describable expectations and learning methods. To illustrate, I would use a projector to provide an example job search and application process to help students visualize um, both the step-by-steps and the final result. While all of these techniques are 
way more engaging, way more interactive, and in a lot of aspects have the potential to be way more effective to building independent learners, um, long-term skill sets as opposed to what <laughs> simple memorization produces or scribbling down notes from a lecture may produce, especially for students like me who are autistic or have learning disabilities. Um, they may not be accessible to many disabled students, and that's coming from personal experience. And also, I'm sure that there are a lot of implications for learning goals that have to do with class and race that I simply do not have the depth to touch on. But I know that um, it's something that's being talked about because CTE is is meant for students to go into the workforce. Um, specifically for students with disabilities, uh, the independent learning styles and goals just might not be accessible for, for many disabled students. Um, independent group learning, utilizing a computer, generalized examples, even like using a projector and like talking, um, deaf students <laughs> exist, um, blind students exist, uh, so these examples can easily be inaccessible to students with varying physical, mental, and emotional disabilities that really are not that uncommon. Um, however, implementing diversity into the techniques themselves alongside disabled voices could better serve this course objective by incorporating adaptive technology and teacher aid participation, for example. Um, also, in my classroom, I would incorporate individual reflections on goals and needs into fundamental protocol rather than on a case-to-case -case basis. So each of my classrooms are going to be accessible to my students in that classroom, all of them, not just one of them or... Um, I'm going to have one teaching style or like a, like a handful of teaching styles that I apply to everyone until uh, something changes. Um, it's going to be part of my teaching style to be accessible. Um, this overall will enable greater student agency and accessibility far more so than is afforded to me as a, a college student. A disabled college student um, using primarily constructivist uh, traditional teaching methods um, that oftentimes inhibit communication between student and teacher um, and inhibit student success and again perpetuate um, just long-term themes of inequality. Well that was sure a lot but i i hope it was insightful for you it sure was for me i will continue to be looking into advanced teaching techniques their benefits um their issues with systemic racism and sexism and, and ableism and things of that nature to make my classroom more informed and, and more effective and beneficial for for all of my students uh, thank you for coming to Somewhere in Between Scooby-Doo and Slam Poets.
Uh, I'm your host, Gray Kipping, and I'll see you next time.